0: Right. well, there are several words, and I mean, there's not several, there's many words or terms or phrases that are important to us as Christians, words that have sacred meaning, words like baptism or trinity or repentance, words that outside the church they don't ever really say or use, but are important to us, words like potluck, possibly the most sacred of all church words. But for followers of Jesus, there's perhaps no word more filled with purpose and hope than the word resurrection. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if resurrection ain't true, ain't none of it worth anything. That's what Paul's saying. Without the concept of resurrection, of life returning to things that once were dead, um, initiated and enabled by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, Without the concept of resurrection, then our faith is nothing, and we are truly pitiful humans. Everything hinges on resurrection. Faith in the resurrection is the foundation upon which everything else about our faith is built. that I mean, that's pretty strong, but if there's no resurrection, then it's worthless. But the idea of resurrection is not unique to the account of Jesus' sacrifice. Stories of miraculous resurrections are peppered throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament alike. In these stories, there are some striking similarities. And in these similarities, my hope is that we'll find encouragement and hope for our own faith this morning. We'll begin by reading Acts 20, verses 1 to 6, and talking about it very briefly, and then zooming ahead to the last of these biblical resurrection accounts in verses 7 to 12. But because he is alive, we can celebrate the fact that we can be made alive as well. This here, he's alive. That We could say that about Jesus, but in our passage, it's somebody saying that about somebody who gets resurrected. So it's true both ways. Because he is alive, we can celebra- celebrate the fact that we can be made alive as well. So let's read about a few of Paul's travel details in the first half of our passage. We're mostly just looking at it to get it out of the way to get to the next story, but we'll read it. So this is Acts 20 verses 1 to 6. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Chapter 20 is all about Paul on his little encouragement trip. So today it begins, um, I think it's next week, we'll look at the content of his message of encouragement. But chapter 20 is all about Paul encouraging the believers. So he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby; Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. All right. It's kind of a boring, just a little interlude passage. And by the way, now that Luke has joined the party, you'll notice he says we instead of they. He goes into detail about a lot of these trips, a, a lot more than we'd ever need, because he's there. He wants us to know the details of these trips. But this passage began with mention of an uproar. Does anybody remember what the uproar was that Paul is now leaving from in chapter 19? What was the uproar? Well, it's been a couple weeks, so here's an alliterative reminder. Maybe this will jog your memory. This is what led to the uproar in the city of Ephesus, where Paul had been very successful. First, sweatbands, that save. Then the sons of Skeva, Then smoldering scrolls. Then surly silversmiths. I'll fancy that it all begins with S. Um, so Paul, the power of the Holy Spirit was so infused in Paul that even his sweaty headbands was saving were saving people. Because Ephesus was obsessed with magic, lots of people wanted to use the same name that Paul was using to save people. They started using the name of Jesus like a, a abracadabra sort of thing. And that the sons of seven sons of Sceva tried that, and the devil's or the, the demon inside the person they were trying to exercise said. Jesus I know, and Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? Then beat the pulp out of them. Um, so the name of Jesus became even more famous and even more authoritative in the area, which led to many of these magicians coming together and burning their magic scrolls, confessing what was in them, which meant stripping them of their power and burning them on the spot because they were worthless. And that, all of that led to more fame and more recognition for the name of Jesus which meant that the silversmiths working at the temple of Artemis were upset because people were, were, not as many people were worshipping Artemis. So many people were beginning to worship Jesus that people weren't buying their silver tokens to give to Artemis, the goddess. And so they were upset about this, and so they wanted to punish Paul and the disciples. And they rushed them into the town square, and eventually the, the town magistrates said, like, knock it off, guys. We're going to in trouble from Rome. Just leave the Christians alone. Um, and so that's the uproar that this story comes out of. Having conquered the Greek world for the kingdom of God in cities like Philippi in the north, Corinth in the south, Ephesus in the center, uh, Damascus to the east, um, throughout what we would now call Greece and Macedonia and Turkey and Syria, um, he conquered that part of the world for Christ. Not conquer like we would think of military conquering, but he made the name of Jesus well-known, and many people came to to know and love and worship Jesus. And so now Paul sets his sights from the Greek world to the Latin world, to ground zero for the whole Roman Empire, the whole known world at the time, and that was the city of Rome. Paul sets his sights on Rome. But first, a trip to Jerusalem, which is delayed because, surprise, surprise, you're not going to believe this, some Jewish believers want to kill him, as is always happening to Paul. Everywhere he goes, every city he goes to, the Jews there, want to kill him and that happens again we know from paul's writings that during this time he was collecting funds from the gentile churches to support the jerusalem church which was going through a really hard time as a display of solidarity towards brothers and sisters and to unite jewish and gentile christians alike luke doesn't mention this even though we know that he was there again that it changes it to we did this so he was there he doesn't mention the collection but nevertheless, that's probably why we get this roll call of names here. Uh, names in this passage, men whose names pop up throughout Paul's writings, and men from a wide range of cities that Paul had evangelized. So Sopater is from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, some guys from Asia Minor, Timothy was from the region of Galatia. Luke, who our our author, he's probably there representing Philippi, where he had been stationed. And Paul. Either Paul represents Corinth, because Corinth was a big deal city. Um, either Paul represents Corinth, or Paul and Corinth were fighting at the time, which you can, if you read the books of Corinthians, you see there's some tension there. So maybe Paul's like, no, you guys are being bad. You're not allowed to participate. Um, we're not sure. Anyway, it's an impressive list of men that highlights just how mind-blowingly successful Paul had been on his three missions trips through the Greek world. All these people, all these men whose names are here, represent leaders in churches that hadn't existed some 10 years earlier. Paul had been hugely influential with the Holy Spirit in starting these churches up in these places, and they're so healthy and they're so strong that he can bring these, draw these leaders to him to sail to Jerusalem to deliver an offering. And the churches were healthy and okay. The Holy Spirit guiding Paul at every turn was making the name of Jesus very famous in this entire region. And so Paul feels the need to move on to Jerusalem before being drawn like a magnet to Rome itself, but as Luke mentions, because of those sneaky would-be assassins on the ship to Syria, Paul instead finds himself in Troas. Here's Troas, right there. Uh, he was supposed to go all the way down to here, instead goes to here because people want to kill him. People always want to kill Paul. He would only remain in Troas for about a week. But what a memorable week it was. So let's read verses seven to twelve. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. By the way, this is the first mention of church being on a Sunday in the Bible. This is kind of where the tradition began. Right here in this verse, that they met together on the first day, like like us, their Sabbath, their, their day of worship for Jewish people was Saturday. So that the seventh day, the day of rest. The first day of the week is the day that followed, which we call Sunday. The slaves who made up a huge population of the church were able to meet freely in the evenings on the first day of the week. And so that's when they met, which is kind of cool. Here's That's the reason we're here on a Sunday morning. It's largely because of this verse and other verses like it. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. The translation there is literally he fell on the man, He fell on Eutychus. Took him in his arms and said, don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. That's it, Paul left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. The story of poor young Eutychus is a powerful reminder of the fatal risk you take each and every time you fall asleep during a sermon. Sure, none of you are sitting on a third-story window ledge, but watch yourself. If I decide to keep preaching until dawn, you're expected to stay alert lest you plummet to your death. So, just keep that in mind. Yeah the same just kidding it's not about that at all obviously actually luke goes to lengths to take the blame off both paul for his long-windedness he preaches all the way till dawn all the way through the night and preaches isn't the right word it's probably more of a conversation they have paul paul the paul intro as for only a week and so they're gonna make the best use they can they're gonna get glean as much from paul as they can and their one in his one night before he has to sail away. So it makes sense that they would do this. And so Luke goes to length to take the blame off both Paul, for being long-winded, and Eutychus in his tactlessness, falling asleep when you have Paul right in front of you. How does he take the blame off? Well, in, in verse 8, Luke mentions all the lamps in the room, which is a very weird sort of aside. They're meeting in a, in a room and there's a bunch of lamps. So why, is the, why does he mention the lamps? Why is that important? Well, imagine you are Eutychus. Imagine you've just spent all day working hard in the fields, since the church had a very large population of slaves attending services, as I mentioned. Now, after working from dawn to dusk that whole day, having not even eaten yet, probably, uh, you find yourself crammed into a room with dozens of other others to listen to Paul talk on and on and on. You move to the window to get some fresh air to keep you awake, but because of the warm, oily, smoky atmosphere, Um, In this lamp-filled room, it's making your head swim. After all of that, after the the tiredness of the work of the day, the fatigue, the the hunger, the, the squished conditions, the smoky atmosphere, after all that, like the disciples on the Mount of Olives or the ten virgins in Matthew 25 awaiting the return of the bridegroom in that parable, in all those stories, fatigue overwhelms you. And as with those other stories, death comes with it. But it's not an act of judgment. It's not a warning to anyone witnessing Eutychus' fateful sleepiness. This isn't an act of judgment. God didn't kill Eutychus for falling asleep. Um, It's merely a tragic accident. A young man fell victim to one of those random encounters with death. But death does not get the last word. At this point, I want to return to what I mentioned in the introduction. The fact that stories of resurrection are peppered throughout the entirety of the Bible. Aside from the resurrection, like when you say resurrection, you're talking obviously about who? You're not talking about Lazarus. You're talking about Jesus, right? Aside from the resurrection, there are eight other accounts of specific people being brought back from the dead. Um, There's also one story of a mass resurrection. You'll probably remember when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, there's an earthquake, and the dead rise from their graves in Jerusalem and start walking around and interacting with people. That's a mass resurrection. I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to put that to the side. And we'll deal instead. Um, here's a list of the eight specific examples of resurrection. So there's a gap. The first three are Old Testament stories, the books of First and Second Kings. Those three occur at the hands of the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. And since Elisha is a foreshadowing character for Jesus, the next three resurrections occur at the hands of Jesus, the Son of God. The final two are carried out by followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. Peter. In chapter 9 and paul in chapter 20 that we just read do you just looking at this so i'll read it out there's in first Kings 17 elijah resurrects a widow's son in second kings 4 elisha raises a humble family's son second kings 13 elisha's bones reanimate a corpse and do you see the parallel in luke 7 jesus re- resurrects a widow's son just like in just like elijah had In Mark 5, Jesus raises a humble man's daughter, just like Elisha had raised a humble family's son. And in John 11, Jesus' words, not his bones, but his words, are enough to reanimate the four-day-old corpse of Lazarus. So There's a lot of similarities. Um, In Acts 9, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Tabitha, whose other name is unfortunately Dorcas, which is great. Um, And then here, Paul raises Eutychus. You might be Tempted to, like, this is not exactly a who's who list of people being resurrected here. This is not Abraham being resurrected from the dead, or Moses, or David. Those men, when they died, they stayed dead. They didn't experience any earthly resurrection. You might be tempted to say that these resurrections are wasted on lowly, unimportant background characters, children, and widows, and humble servants. In the case of Elijah's healing, it's a foreigner, it's not even an Israelite who's raised uh, from the dead. It, you, you would be tempted to see these as outsiders, and why does God why does God bring back to life these nobodies? These are people whose lives are marked, however, by humble service. The widow of Zarephath, that in 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath was willing to sacrifice the very last remaining food in her house. She had saved, there was a famine, she had saved her last bit of flour and her last bit of oil, and she was going to make one last meal of bread cakes for her and her son, and then they were going to die. That was her plan, because it was a famine. She had no way to to, to provide for her or her son. Instead, Elijah shows up and says, will you feed me? And even though that's her last bit of food, she feeds Elijah. So that sacrifice was honored by Elijah and by God. She had her son brought back to life. The couple in 2 Kings 4 showed repeated hospitality to the prophet Elisha, even building an additional room for him. Whenever he was in the area, he'd stay with them. And when theirs, he promised them, because of their hospitality, that God would give them a son. And he did. When that son died, Elisha was the instrument through whom God resurrected that son. Jairus, which is uh, the story in Mark 5, Jairus was a local synagogue leader, patiently teaching people about the ways of God, and he sought out Jesus with faithful desperation. Then there's Tabitha, who was a seamstress who who worked with her hands and made things to give to the poor, even though she was herself not a rich person. And so in these examples, you have sacrifice, hospitality, faithfulness, and charity. These are low-key, these are nobodies, these people who are healed, but these are low-key heroes at the same time. These are virtuous servants, humble people who are serving God. These were not people of prominence or power or cultural significance. Resurrection doesn't come to kings and rulers and military heroes. Death is conquered among the least of these. It's through the least of these that God demonstrated his enormous power and compassion through the act of resurrection. Think of the story of Luke 7. The widow in that story, Jesus just happens to see a funeral procession go by, and it's a widow grieving the loss of her only son, which in that society meant disaster. And so as this funeral procession goes by, the widow, she's not expecting Jesus to help. She doesn't even know Jesus is there. She's not expecting a miracle. What she's expecting is a long, lonely, and challenging life uh, with no one to care for her. That's what she's anticipating. And instead... She receives absolute grace from a God who just wants to demonstrate how much he loves this woman and all people, that there is nobody too small, that they are outside the scope of God wanting to care for them, show compassion for them. And so Jesus, just because he loves her, just because he wants to show compassion to her, heals her son. And now she's returned. Basically, she's saved because her son will care for her. Where nobody would have, Jesus does. And now her son can a beautiful story. It's an act of unparalleled, again, power and compassion. In many of these healings, that power and compassion is communicated through touch. Hands down, the strangest of all these stories is the third one, um, Elisha and his bones. Elisha is dead and gone. He's In fact, he's been dead for so long, long enough that his bones are all that's left. And the story goes that there's these men who are attempting to bury the corpse of their friend, but a band of raiders shows up. And so they just take this in haste as they want to get get away from there. They just take their dead friend and toss him in Elijah's tomb. And this corpse touches the bones of Elisha and immediately pops up and is alive. It's very weird. Just by merely coming into contact with the bones of that powerful prophet of God, the dead man jumps up alive and well. Just by touching his dusty remains. It's a really strange story. Moreover, and probably more significantly, in the first two stories, the the story of Elijah and the first story of Elisha, um, as with the resurrection of Eutychus that we just read in Acts 20, the act of resurrection, that act of grace, uh, follows God's servant literally falling on the victim and draping their body over the deceased. That's what the Greek says that Paul does to Eutychus. He runs downstairs and falls on him. That's all it says. Um, And that's exactly what Elisha and Elijah had done. In fact, I think it's Elisha, that story. He drapes his body over the body of the dead son three times and then paces the room. That draping of the body, that, that physical touch is important. Some think that was an ancient description of CPR, that that's how they describe performing emergency. I, I think that's silly. What I think it is is something more primal and more beautiful. I think that it's a portrait of the father's healing hands The father, the same father who sent his son in bodily form and who conquered death once and for all after his own body was laid low. Just as Elijah and Elisha and Paul's bodies were draped over the dead, I think it's a portrait of how Jesus' body covers us and delivers us from death as well. That because he submitted his body to punishment and judgment and wrath, because his body was laid low, that he fell, because his body was laid low, that sacrifice, and that's what we honor here with the bread during communion, that body covers us and protects us from that judgment, from that wrath that we ourselves deserve. His body covers us and delivers us from death. I don't think it's CPR. I think it's a portrait of what what God does for us. He sent his son whose body protects us from death as well. Figuratively and, and literally. His body literally delivers us from death. But in all of this, what I want us to catch today the thing that I think is really important, is the nature of those who experience the power and compassion of resurrection. That's what's really significant to me. Peter and Paul played a hand, literally played a hand in touching and healing and and raising people from the dead. So they played a part in it, but those two pillars of the church faced martyrdom and were executed without experiencing earthly resurrection. It's not the, the big names who experience resurrection. Instead, God uses resurrection to demonstrate power to the humble, to demonstrate hope to the lonely, to demonstrate compassion to the weak, and to demonstrate grace to the unloved. He brings life back to the lifeless. He brings life where life is gone or is broken. I don't know about you, but I identify a whole heck of a lot more with the small people in these stories. I'm more like the fatigued Eutychus, drowsy and and nodding off, and not really paying attention to truth, I'm more like the fatigued Eutychus more of the time than the powerful Paul. I'm more like the kind little background servant Tabitha than Peter, the rock upon which the church was built. I'm more like a toiling, lonely widow than Elijah, the greatest prophet of Israel's history. I'm more like the grieving, anxious woman, mother, parent. I'm more like that person than the almighty son of God, Jesus Christ. In these stories, In other words, I identify more with the small, humble people who experience the love of God that conquers even death itself. I identify more with them than I identify with the ones doing the healing, doing the resurrecting. And I I think that's intentional. I think that's why God heals lowly people, or resurrects lowly people. Widows, servants, and children. When I say that I identify with them, that's not to say that I expect one day when I die, that I will be physically resurrected as well. Um, although the hope of resurrection after death is something that we all undoubtedly cling to. I'm not saying I identify with them because I expect one day to die and four days later rise from the the grave covered in my... That, that's disturbing to me. I, I don't want that, in fact. Unless it's God's will for me, then I guess it's pretty okay. But it's, I don't say I identify with them in that way. I... Last week, uh, I was sitting in a doctor's office with Angie and the girls flipping through National Geographic. There was a really interesting article on the science of what happens to our brain and our bodies when we die. That there's no on-off switch. You're alive and then you're dead. That there, death is a transition phase. And this article was all about that transition phase. And, and in that article, there was a, um, a picture that caught my attention. It was a picture of a woman hugging a huge copper-colored tank. Um, apparently the caption said, inside that tank were the remains, the cryogenically frozen remains of her husband who had died some time earlier. When she dies, she is arranged to be frozen beside him as well in the hopes that one day science will thaw them out and imbue them both with life again and they can be together again. Whatever. I, I don't know. To me, that is the essence of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that I had read earlier about hopeless people to be pitied more than any others. To me, that is just an act of desperation. And I don't. The, what she's hoping for is artificial resurrection, essentially. And who knows what science will do with that? Who knows? I don't know. I'm trying to cheat death. But in all likelihood, it will never pay off, even at the cost of many thousands of dollars of cryogenic tank space. Do you know anybody who has a cryogenic freezing tank for their no, because it, you have to be ludicrously wealthy to be able to afford something like that. But you can't blame the woman for trying. Life after death is a hope that humanity has clung to for, for as long as there's been humans experiencing death. It's a hope that I have as well, not in the same cryogenic sense, the hope of the resurrection that we read about in First Corinthians 15, that one day our body will be like a seed that dies in the ground and is resurrected to a new glorious existence. We will call that heaven or the new Jerusalem or... Who knows? I I don't know the process. None of us do. Nobody does. Somebody tells you they know all about how resurrection happens. Don't listen to them. They don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus and Paul both promised that resurrection is a real, true thing. That will happen to you if you have faith in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's a hope that we can all have. But that's not why these stories are beautiful to me. They're not these, these stories of these, these eight resurrected nobodies are not beautiful to me because of, I anticipate something to happen after I die in the future. To me, these stories don't speak to the future resurrection. They speak to the hope of resurrection in our lives this very moment. Right now. Eutychus is just a regular guy who experienced a significant tragedy, but who was reintroduced to life through the faithful power and compassion of a fellow servant of God, in this case, Paul. You can bet. That every hour in the fields afterwards felt more beautiful. That every handful of bread tasted fresher. That every song of praise was sung louder. That every hug he shared with loved ones was more urgent. Life had more meaning after encountering death, I'm sure. This is why, Grandma, if you don't mind me telling this story, after Grandpa died, now every time that we see Grandma... We can't leave the house without a big hug, and she makes sure to tell us, I love you. Um, That didn't happen all the time when Grandpa was still alive. And I think maybe she's feeling like Grandpa missed out on some of that, that he never got a chance to say those words of, I love you. And so she doesn't want to miss that chance again. So she's experienced death very personally, and now she's, because of that, life, she makes sure that life is filled with a little bit more love. And it's beautiful really means something to me every time. And I think this is true for all of us as well. Um, In the face of death, we can know what life really is and see beauty in it. And I think that's resurrection. Anytime life is more beautiful, that is resurrection. But there's more. I I think there's an even more literal sense that this can happen for us right now today. So much of our own life is marked by the stench of death. So much about my life is just ugly and deathly things like greed and envy and self-idolatry and pride and lust and meanness and impatience and bigotry i have many of those and at times in my life i've had all of those things in an hour i will have these many of these things i cannot escape these things in my life it's just part of the deathly nature of being a fallen human being each of these things And many more. I don't know what your thing is. Those are just a few that I've struggled with. But each of these things is a festering wound that if not properly cared for will lead to death. But, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Take heart, for he has conquered all of these messy, ugly, deathly parts of ourselves. Where there is impatience with my girls, every day, every hour, (laughs) I think. Where there is impatience with my girls, he is able to resurrect patience back within me. Where there is envy, he's able to resurrect contentment. Where there is crippling arrogance, he is able to resurrect humility. Where there is selfish comfort, he's able to resurrect charity. These are the things we see in our heroes who were resurrected. Hospitality, faithfulness, charity. And I think that's why they got to experience resurrection. Life sprouts out of small humble, broken people like you and me. The dead things in us are pruned away and healthy new growth can occur. And that is resurrection. That is a return to life of things that had gone stagnant and stale and diseased and had died away. And I need my heavenly gardener to prune those things off me so I can look more like my savior. This is often painful, this pruning process. Think of weeping widows. Who experiences more pain than a woman whose only son has died. What's more painful than that? I can't think of much. Or think of the shocked crowd on the third floor looking down helplessly at Eutychus's broken and bent body. Can you, can you imagine how painful that would be? This young man who just wanted to come and hear Paul, and now he's dead. Think of how hard it is, how painful it is to swallow your pride, to bite your tongue, to get taken down a peg, those things are not easy. They hurt. They really suck. But they're good for us. The result is resurrection. A return to life, a return to growth, and a return to health. That's that's resurrection. And he's able to do that for you and will do, and is doing that for you right now, today. And so on this Father's Day, I see a father so filled with power, so filled with compassion for his children, you and I, that even a brief encounter with him, can bring life to his children who know the sting of death or can bring life to his children who are willing to admit how deathly their lives have been resurrection is not only a future hope it's a present reality for any small humble servant willing to turn to him in faith we see this in the story and i haven't mentioned it yet this is the last one that i'm going to mention we see this in the story of the second most famous resurrection in the bible and that's the raising of lazarus in that story Jesus says to Lazarus' sister, Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. Lazarus, he'll rise again. He can be resurrected. And Martha answered, yeah, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus says, "Your, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yeah, some hope that is. It's for the future. After he's dead and I'm dead, all the dead will rise again, those who have been faithful. Thanks a lot, Jesus. That's not super comforting. I want my brother back now. She thinks that it's just a hope for the distant future. But Jesus corrects her and will soon demonstrate that it's a hope for right now. He is so powerful and so compassionate that no resurrection is outside the realm of his strength and out of the realm of his desire to show love to his children. And so right then, they walked down to the grave and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha's focused only on what will happen in the distant future. She thinks that's all there is to resurrection. Jesus says, no, you don't know me if you think that's all it is. I can do miracles. I can do powerful acts of bringing life where there is death. Right now. I can do that right now, he says. And then he goes and brings life to a man who had been buried in a tomb for four days. He's been in there so long, he says, roll away the tomb, or the tombstone. The people are like, he's been in there for a long time. He's going to stink some fierce, Jesus. If he can bring life back to Lazarus, or to lonely widows, or to a young man sleeping during the sermon, if he can bring life back to people with a mere touch, or a word, or a set of dusty old bones, If he is willing to resurrect humble children of grieving widows, perhaps our Father is willing and able to demonstrate that sort of power and compassion right now in your life as well. Death is painful, but it is not final. And the dead things within us need not be victorious in the light of our resurrected King. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the definition of both those things. He is everything that is true about resurrection, everything that is good about resurrection, everything that is good about life, both while we're here and after we're gone, because he is a powerful and compassionate dad. And when others look at our changed lives, may they exclaim, as Paul did to Eutychus, he or she is truly alive. Let's pray. Father God, you bring life where there is death in us. And there's lots about each one of us that we need to turn to you and get stripped away because they are dead things that disease us and pollute us. But you are able and willing to miraculously strip those things away and bring life where there was once death. And I thank you for all the many ways you do that for us, Father, ways that we don't even acknowledge. Holy Spirit, we know that you are inside us right now, filling us with life and with resurrection. Father, each one of us looks forward to that future day when after we inevitably die, we will be resurrected to to spend eternity with you. But Father, we also know that eternity and resurrection and and eternal life, those are truths for us right now. So I pray that we would cling to those promises, that we would be resurrected people, filled with light and life, to bring life to other parts of your world that need it. Um, God, you are a good dad. You care for us. You show us compassion. You are strong. You are everything that is good about a father. And we see that in you and celebrate that today. We see that in how you sent your son to be resurrection and life for us. We praise you for that, Jesus. We praise you for that, Father. We thank you for that work in us, Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If I decide to keep preaching until dawn, you're expected to stay alert lest you plummet to your death. So just keep that in mind. You know anybody who has a cryogenic freezing tank?